Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Hocus Pocus, are we alive? Okay. Before we get started, I just want to, and, and Chris, let's just do the, uh, the, the new building. I want to show you where we are on our, with a picture or two, of where we are on the uh, project over in Uganda. Because uh, the church building is done, and uh, the chairs are there, 600 chairs, and, uh, and, and we'll do something more complete here in a week or two. But uh, we're working now on this Sunday school building that will also be a, a high school. And the reason the town and the area, or the country really, is excited about it, it's the first time a church has actually come in and helped them um, do something with their school system that's a little bit different. The kids in high school, they're in that, in that community, high school kids have to walk three miles each way to go to school to a state school, and most of the state schools, including that one, are just really not very good. And uh, so we agreed that we would design the building so that it could be used for Sunday school on the, on, on the weekends and, and the, a public high school through the week. And, uh, and this is where we are uh, on that building program just for the Sunday school. This is the ground and uh, way back when, just keep trucking here. By the way, they make their own bricks, and you see that. Okay, this is the this is the foundation and and the building of the Sunday school building going up. Keep going. Now that's the church building. Keep on going. Keep on going. Keep on going. That's that's this is the church building that's finished now. We've got new ones on that one. That's the way it looks from the front of the of the church building. Keep, just keep on trying. There's the chairs that have been paid for. That's where this money has gone, but we went ahead and paid for it. These are the tile going down in the church building. Just keep on trucking. I, they, they, I didn't know they were going to do that, but that's CCC Uganda. Uh, that's Patrick and Eddie's doing. This is the for the Sunday school building now. That'll end up being a school building. Just keep going through it so you can see what they're doing. There it is now with the with a tin roof on it, and we built it so that that tin roof can can and there's enough structural support underneath of it that if and when we ever had the wherewithal, we can uh, we can put a substantial number of solar panels on it because their electricity there is not very dependable. So th and uh, that particular building is done now, except for the doors and the windows. We sent them a check this past week for $45,000 to finish up the project because the windows and the doors all have to be metal with metal reinforcement because thievery there is a very real problem. And, uh, and, and there has to be some safety things that go in with it um, so that uh, the students will be safe and, and da 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 da. But as soon as they get the doors and the windows in the building with the, that you saw with the tin roof, they should then be uh, prepared to set a dedication date. And uh, one of their questions they had was, how many people from the mother church are gonna, gonna be there? So, and we don't know that yet. It's not a big issue right now. 
because uh, my first wife and I are going to, we're already saving up shekels to be able to do that. Okay, with that behind us, I think Andrew probably showed off a little bit in here showing that baby. I don't know. Uh, we've had so many of them, it's kind of, you can't yawn through it anymore. I don't know what the, that, that one was, of the great, of the great, great grandchildren was number 11. So, and, and 12 is due the day after Christmas, which is terrible timing. But I feel sorry for that poor kid. You know, he'll get his Christmas presents and nothing else. Yeah. yeah. If you can find the book of Nehemiah in your, on your regular Bible or with your telephone or whatever the heck you use to find stuff like that, the book of Nehemiah, let, let me give you a little background here because there are only two dates in the Old Testament I've told you before that you really need to write so that you have them. The one date, the first one was 720, and these are all B.C., all B.C. 721 B.C. was when the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom uh, fell. And the bulk of the population was moved and scattered all over the Roman, uh, the Babylonian Empire. And then in 586, 587 B.C., the southern kingdom fell, and, and, and Jerusalem was leveled by Nebuchadnezzar. And, but it, he actually conquered them in 597, but just... And in that 597, before it, uh, he took all of the educated and the, and the community leaders to, back to Babylon. And, there were, and you'll see why in just a minute. Because uh, in those kingdoms, there was always somebody somewhere wanting to be the head dog. And what they did was they used poison to get rid of existed sometimes it was a sword or something but more often than not they resorted to, to poison to get rid of the king because they were somebody there was always undercurrent in that and uh, and they had they took some interesting steps to see that that didn't happen it boiled down to this the, the jewish people that they brought the educated masses the, the, because judaism had the best educational system in the world and did for a long time through the rabbis and so on, who were, the word rabbi just means teacher. And later on, the, with the synagogues that they developed all over the country, they had an excellent educational system. Well, they, the, the kings of the, the Babylonian Empire and then later uh, the Medo-Persian Empire under a guy named Cyrus, who overthrew the Babylonians, he used these Jewish people uh, internally for protective purposes because they had no ambition of throwing, overthrowing the country. And, you, and Nehemiah fits into that, as we'll see a little later on. When Cyrus overthrew the Babylonian Empire the, with the Medo-Persian Empire, and I don't expect you to remember all this, just get the concept. When he did that, he changed everything. He issued a dictum that said, all of you who have come into this empire from whatever country you're from are free to go home. 
but it has to be systematic and carefully controlled. So, fifth, under a, 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 and they all had to have a governor that was appointed by Cyrus the king. He appointed a guy named Zerubbabel to lead 50,000 people back, 49,800 and something, they had the exact number, back to Jerusalem and the surrounding area. With him went a guy, later on there was a guy that, that went with him named Ezra. He was a preacher, or, and, and so he led in the, in the rebuilding of the temple. And he was really quite successful. It took a long time because the locals that were there really resented the fact that they let 50,000 people come back home. And so the, uh, the locals that were, that were still there created a lot of problems. They actually had one period when they didn't do anything for 15 years. But finally, they, under Ezra, with Zerubbabel as the, uh, as the governor, rebuilt the temple. But the temple and the temple worship couldn't hardly take place because of the tension from the surrounding people. And so uh, they needed to restore the walls and refortify the walls of Jerusalem so that the people could come in and worship without having to worry about safety. That's where Nehemiah comes on the scene. Nehemiah had been given a vision by God of the restored walls and the renewal of the gates because all the gates, when, when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed the city, he just leveled it and burnt all the wooden, heavy wooden gates. And there were several. They're actually enumerated through the book of Nehemiah. He had this vision of the restruction of the, of the walls and the renewal of the gates so that everybody would be secure. He, he called it the refortification of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so, but Nehemiah's job, he had a really good job. You remember I told you, he, the, Cyrus and the other kings brought in people from other countries who had no uh, desire to overthrow him. And he brought them in into the, Daniel, you remember, was, was, in, was a part of that. He was uh, inside the, uh, the gates of the, uh, of, for, the, for the king and the queen. Esther appointed to the wife of the king, Xerxes. Then he's succeeded by Artaxerxes, who is the king over that empire when Nehemiah is in the picture. Nehemiah's job was, it says in the scripture, they call him a, a cup bearer. A cup bearer. What that means in northern Kentucky 10 cent store language is everything that the king drank or ate, he had to eat, drink, or taste before it was handed to the king so that he couldn't be poisoned. And, and, and obviously, he, he had access to the king on a routine basis every day. And it is evident here that the king really liked him, too, because he was a personable cuss, good personality, and dependable. And, uh, and, but he had this vision of the restored walls. And, and <clears throat> when you read carefully here, 
in the <clears throat> in the second chapter, I'll read just a section of it in a minute. For four months, he prayed about it, wondering, now is this just something I want to do for me, or is this something that God wants done? And I bet you all of us have struggled with issues like that from time to time. Because all of us have some thoughts that come to our mind <clears throat> that aren't always uh, a part of the kingdom of God. We all have had struggled with that. So for four months he prayed. Four months. Prayer. We need to comment on that. I didn't know how to pray for years. Oh, I knew what I'd been taught in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. I knew that. You, you stop and you fix your hands and you bow your head. Or if you're really serious, you get on your knees. And if, and if the world's falling apart, you fall on your face and you pray. Well, I'm telling you, if you got a job and a wife that demands some attention and her children that she keeps bringing into the world that demand more attention... The first thing you know, there ain't much time for stopping and doing all this. It wasn't until much later that I learned that's all right for teaching little children, but that ain't the way it's done. You become conscious of the presence of God all the time. He promises, hey, I'm there whether you're conscious of me or not. I am there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm always there. So I can drive down the road and do it routinely anymore, have for years. When I drive by somebody's house, you can't help but throw a little prayer up for them, especially. And we have people here all the time. And, and, and if you live between the church building and our house, you get prayed for a lot. Some of the rest of you are on the fringes. So, but, but you learn as you go. You share your thoughts and your dreams with God. Who and, and in a car by yourself, you're there where he can speak to you. And if you don't do it in a car, you need to have a place at home called a prayer closet where you can get by yourself. And, and uh, that's a different situation. Some of, some of you folks here have attended for years, have a Pentecostal background, and you, you do the tongues thing. Now, I don't, but I'm not opposed to them. But you do have to understand, everything that's spoken in public needs to be understood by everybody present. So if somebody speaks in tongues and that scares a lot of people, well, we've, we've had it to happen before. Somebody started speaking in tongues and, I, and I, I waited for a second and I had to say, okay, you're out of order. There has to be an interpreter where everybody understands what's going on. Now they usually get mad and leave, which is fine. There's, the door opens both ways. But that's what the scripture says you're to do. And so you, you learn how to handle that. But in your prayer closet, that's between you and God. I don't care if you stand on your head, head and spit nickels. I could care less. That's, that's your, between you and God. But here, everything that is said, everybody should have access to. Even if you have questions. Last night, I took a little time to ask, and took some questions about the building over there and, and had three or four pretty, pretty decent questions. I was surprised that, that with one exception, the women ask better questions than men do. I, what's going on here? 
But anyhow, that, that he prayed for four months, and 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 one day he came into the presence. Nehemiah came into the presence of of King Artaxerxes, and 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 here's the way the scripture reads: It was in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him. I took the wine. This is him talking first in first person. Nehemiah. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're, you're not sick? This can be nothing but, but sadness of your heart. What's the problem? I was very much afraid, he said, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. And that was what you always said before you approached him. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire and the king said oh, what do you want then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king if it pleases the king and if your servant meaning Nehemiah has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city in Judah, in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Cut to the chase. The king said, right on. You give me the plan and I'll help you execute it. Nehemiah put together a plan. He had to go through some enemy territory. So the king said, I'll give you a military escort. I need money. I'll, you'll take gold and silver with you. I need people who are engineers and, and people who know how to cut stone and, and build the walls. They're yours. Take them with you. And so he goes back. Eventually he gets to Jerusalem. I won't give you the dates because you won't remember them anyway. But he gets back to Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas actually said, we got to stop this. We're going to have a fortified city with 50,000 Jews, and it's a real problem for us. And so they actually threatened his life, threatened to kill him, put together a plan, bribed some people, tried to, tried to kill him. He just dug his heels in and said to the, the, to the people working on the walls, we're going to work 24 hours a day, you're going to carry a spear or a sword so that if we're attacked, can he remind you what's going on in Israel today if you think about it a little bit? And they completed the walls all the way around that city of David in 52 days, working 24 hours a day. And, uh, I mean, he did something that couldn't be done, but they did it anyway. Why? Because God gave him the vision, and then he equipped him to carry out that vision because it would honor him. Because God, in the, all through the Old Testament and even up until now, has honored the Jewish people in an unusual way. He has blessed the Jewish people with a great concept in finance. He promised them a long time ago that they would prosper if they would honor him. You may not know it. Most people don't because they don't really care. But you would be shocked to know the amount of the finance in our country that's under 
the control of the Jewish folk, of Jewish individuals. Two of the biggest banks. One one outfit where people invest in, in which you school teachers would be interested in knowing handle about 90% of the retirement funds of the Jew, of the educational system in the United States. One company does it. Their total, their total control of finance is almost equal to our national debt of $33 trillion. I mean, they are in control of tremendous amount of finances. And I can give you names and numbers if you really want them. But God has blessed Jewish people. You remember, those of you who know anything about history know that they've always been gifted in this area. The Second World War came about because Hitler was able to point to the Jewish people in Germany and most of Europe and say, they control all the finances. They're the problem while we... And so they were vilified. And... Um, you know, over six million of them were killed because he could say, you know, the reason we're in trouble financially and there's poor people, so on and so forth, because of those Jews. It doesn't bother me that people who work hard and are intelligent and know how to make money, make money. God bless them if they earn it. But we've raised a culture here that we need to be aware of who says, well, we deserve it whether we earn it or not. That's bad news, folks. That's bad news. Everybody who works hard and earns. Now, I, I, the Bible teaches that for widows and orphans and people in real trouble, we have a responsibility to take care of them. But for a guy that's just lazy and wants to live off of us, uh, the New Testament actually says, actually says this, when they get hungry, they'll go to work. And he, Paul actually says, let them starve. That's pretty hard. But it's what it, say, it says what it says. In our culture, this is hate, hate talk. The Bible will sooner or later be vilified as a hate book because it just speaks out pretty straight. In the book, that's in the book of Thessalonians in particular because there were people there who were going out on the hillside looking up saying, Jesus be coming today, Jesus be coming today, and the rest of y'all need to feed me while I stand and look up. And the apostle Paul let, that bunch, let them starve. They'll go, go home, go to work. Read it for yourself. This man, Nehemiah, I've looked at his life and I've tried to separate who he really is, because I think he's worth emulating. We all need a hero. Most of my heroes at growing up had more to do with athletics than, than they did intellect, which was dumb on my part. But I saw him, I see Nehemiah, first of all, as a man of prayer. Anybody that prays about something four, four months in a row before he does anything, Secondly, and some of you may get uncomfortable here, but it, this is because of what, I'm, what it says. He was a patriot. He was a patriot. He loved his country. And he was willing to put his life on the line in order to help his people. 
Nehemiah was also a man of, of faith demonstrated rather than just talked about. I respect people like that who actually live their faith rather than just talk about it. He was also a man of great courage because he felt he ran into a lot of resistance in carrying out the plan that the king and his God had given him to do. And lastly, I see him as an individual of perseverance. He hung in there until the job was done. My old pappy used to say we would, be, we would be doing something and something more interesting would come up and his position was finish what you're doing before you start something else. And he wasn't very tolerant for those of us who differed with him. And uh, if you get the picture. Let's go ahead. We've already talked about Nehemiah being a man of prayer. Let's talk about him as a patriot because he said, you know, he actually said, I, I weep about my country i weep about its capital it's unprotected from enemies i weep about that in verse four uh, uh, you know in the first chapter he said when i heard these things i sat down and wept for some days i mourned and fasted and prayed he had this vision that god had given him and until it was completed he just wasn't very happy and he actually practiced what Jesus calls self-denial. Jesus says this to us today, but you don't hear it said, and it needs to be said. Jesus said if, to his disciples, now if you, and they were saying, we want to go with you, you're popular, we want to go with you. And he said, hey, look, it's not that easy. If you go with me, you have to first of all be willing to deny yourself before you take up the cross and follow me. Nehemiah actually did that. He gave up a cush job in the presence of the king where he was protected, cared for, and even liked by the most powerful person in the world at that time to go help people who needed his help. I, can, I, I couldn't help but think, you youngsters, you younger ones here won't remember this, but back in the 60s we had a a Democrat president named John F. Kennedy. President Kennedy and his family were really popular. And he was a Second World War hero. And he actually earned the right to be president. But when he entered office in a speech he made in January of 1961, Many of us who were still alive can actually quote this as I give it to you. He was quoted on every, by everybody everywhere when he said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Everybody, anytime that was said, everybody knew that it was President Kennedy who said it. Patriotism today is being vilified by people who control language. I don't mind telling you, I love this country. Both of my brothers, in one sense of the word, died defending it. 
One was a colonel in the Air Force, another was a command sergeant major in the Army. Our country was founded by people of great patriotism. They wanted to be free. And the only way that you can have freedom is to have independence. The two go hand in hand. And our country was founded by people, interestingly enough, I don't know how well it's being taught today, by both black and white. They stood shoulder to shoulder and fought for the freedom of this country. You may know some of the names, but you may not know what they did. Some of the black schools that we've had in the past were named after Christmas addicts. He was a black man who was the first martyr in our fight for independence. Other guys, like James Armistead and, and Salem Poor, these were black guys who did great things in fighting the British. Why? They hated the British because Britain was in charge of the slave trade. They're the ones who brought slavery to the U.S. and imposed it upon us. People who are bad-mouthing our country, some of which is certainly deserved, need to understand that the real bad guy in all of this was the King of England. They, they had the ships that carried the slaves. They had the, made the deals. That's, and those of you who remember the movie on the, that was shown, I think we showed it here, about how the slave trade was finally condemned by the English. So it stopped, ultimately, was done away with. But the point I'm making is we had farmers, merchants, ministers, educators, black, white, who stood shoulders to shoulder in fighting for the freedom that this country has enjoyed more than anybody else on the face of the earth for a long, long time. You need to know that the people who gave us all of this freedom sacrificed like you cannot believe. But nobody's talking about it. There were 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Those 56 men looked each other straight in the eye and made a pledge and put it in writing. They started off by saying, with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, meaning God, we mutually pledge, they said, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You find that in that little book out there about the Declaration of Independence. They not only made the pledge, they carried it out in real life. Did you ever read about the fate of the signers of these 56 men? Nine of them died of wounds in the Revolutionary War, of the hardships of war. 
Five of them were captured by the British and were sorely tortured before they died. Twelve others had their homes ransacked and then burned. Two of them lost their sons who were fighting in the war. One man had all of his 13 children murdered by British troops. Two of them had their wives brutalized. All were hunted like we hunted squirrels when I was a kid. Seventeen of them lost everything that they had and were destitute. Two of them had sons that were captured and put on a slave, tri- on a slave ship of the British. All 56, in my opinion, proved that their pledge was not an idle boast, but something they were absolutely intent on seeing come to reality. And you and I receive the blessings for their sacrifice. Black people need to know that there was actually a complete black regiment that served in that war with distinction, I might add. It was the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, I think was the name of it. We need to know these things. What's happening today that you should be conscious of is patriotism is being vilified as nas- and being and the word patriotism, when's the last time you heard it other than here? It's because they've substituted the people who control these things. Patriotism, they substituted the word nationalism. And there's a, there was a reason for that. It's not a nice thing. You see, nationalism is the word, first word in what became Nazi, the Second World War. That was the name of the party. That's why at time to time you'll hear those of us who are Bible believers and patriots referred to as Nazis. It's a plan of the bad guys. But you need to be aware of it. Nehemiah loved his country and gave his all because he was convinced it was the will of God. Nehemiah was a guy that I admire because his faith wasn't just a lot of hot air. His faith was what he did. And I like what James in the New Testament wrote about that in the second chapter of James. James commented on and used the Old Testament almost exclusively to illustrate what he was trying to get across. He said it this way, faith without works is dead. It's a fraud. A faith that doesn't produce actions consistent with what we say isn't really faith. It's dead. The word dead means separated, so you've separated your talk from your do. Jesus referred to that as hypocrisy. You see, what Nehemiah did is he endangered his life by approaching the king. 
And then he carried out the plan that he had proposed for the king and his God. And in 52 days, accomplished what couldn't be accomplished otherwise. Jerusalem became a fortified city in the midst of a hostile atmosphere. Nehemiah was also a man of great courage. Now, courage is sometimes misunderstood. Courage is what you do in the, in the face of opposition to what you want to carry out, knowing that it could cause you great harm. That's why I mentioned the 56 founders. They suffered great harm. But they had the courage to complete what they started. We'll get to that in a second. Here in the second chapter, it talks about the opposition that he, he said. Then when Sanballat, who was a leader of the opposition, Tobit and the Ammonite and the Arab, they mocked and ridiculed us. And they said, eh, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against Cyrus, your king? I answer them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. As for you, you can stuff it. <laughs> I don't, won't read the rest of it. That's the short form. In the sixth chapter, in the tenth verse, it talks about how they had the, his enemies had plotted to kill him. They, and they actually... Uh, they actually barred off someone on the inside to try to get him in a position where they could kill him. And in two or three different instances, he talks about how they tried intimidation. You see, courage is completing what you start in spite of those threats and the, and the efforts to intimidate you so that you'll back away in fear. He may have been afraid, I don't know, but he sure didn't show it. Here in the 14th verse of the 6th chapter, just to let you know, he said, Remember these guys, uh, Tobit and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, some woman, I can't pronounce her name, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. He used that same thing two or three times. They're trying to intimidate me. He gritted his teeth and sucked it up and finished the course. He repeated that same thing. In, uh, in this 21st verse here, too, he said they sent letters trying to intimidate me. They used everything available to try to intimidate me so that I'd back off. But Nehemiah had perseverance. Now, this is one of the things that I kind of enjoy talking about, perseverance. My pappy used to say it means stick to It means you finish what you start. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency that I have to fight. I'll be doing something that, that I enjoy doing that needs to be done and kind of gets to be boring and I want to quit and do something else before it's done. Have you ever had to struggle with that? I wrote in your outline here that I owed some to the Bracken County cheerleaders in Bracken County, Kentucky. Because you see, and by the way, one of those cheerleaders is still alive. The rest of them, Barbara Owen just died this past December. And her sister married my brother. 
Anyway, the girls had a, uh, had a cheer. I think I shared it with you one time. And they used Nebuchadnezzar, but I'm going to substitute Nehemiah for Nebuchadnezzar. It was a cheer. And we always, we loved the cheer. See, it was different then. They actually had cheers and they cheered. They all wore skirts. They didn't wear any breeches. And they wore tights underneath the skirt that was the same color as your team colors, you know. Ours were blue and white. We were the Bracken County Polar Bears. You know? And they would get out and do their cheers and they'd whirl around like that and we'd all look because we got to see their underwear. That was just the way it was done in that day and age once upon. They didn't lift anybody up in the air. They didn't do anything. But they said, Nebuchadnezzar was a bulldog's pup and a fighting fool was he. He wouldn't give in and he wouldn't give up and neither by gosh will we. And so we went to the state tournament. Yeah. That's when I became a hero and the girls started having an interest in me. Up until then, I did the chasing. Then, when we got... Actually, the fire department had to draw straws in Bracken County who stayed home while we played against a bunch of Catholics on St. Patrick's Day and got our butts beat. You can't beat a Catholic on St. Patrick's Day. Why they put us there, I'll never know. But my daddy loved to watch us play. And he, he didn't say much. He'd just watch. He pulled, we were stripping tobacco. And he said to me, he said, you know what? You're the smallest guy on the team. I weighed, I was, you know, five, eight and a half when I did this. Weighed 135 pounds on my best day. Daddy had put us a basketball goal inside the barn and one on the outside. And he, but he told me, he said, you're the smallest guy out there. You have to come up with something. You have to come up with something that gives you an advantage. And he said, I, I, I said, I can't grow. I'm, I'm growing. I'm eating. I'm growing as fast as I can. I'm already 5'8", 135 pounds. He said, yes, but the key would be if you can get yourself in better condition than the bigger guys who have more weight to carry around, in the last few minutes of the game, you'll be a star. They'll run out of steam, and you'll be a star. Well, how do I do that? He said, quit riding to school with your mother. It's a mile and four-tenths from our house to T.T. Hill's and Son's store in Germantown. I ran that every morning, and I ran home every night. Mr. Hill was so impressed with that that in the summer he gave me a job and said, if you're going to run up here every day, you might as well stay and work. And he gave me $5 a day to work at the store, which wasn't bad. I was making 30 bucks a week. Hey, tall cotton then. Now you can see why the girls had more interest in me. I had money to spend. And women like security. The difference was, 
when everybody else ran out of steam, I was just getting cranked good. And you can check this out. After I left Bracken County High School, I went to Kentucky Christian. And we played some really good teams. Freshman, sophomore year, we played the University of Kentucky freshman team. And you can ask my first wife, I think I scored 27 points, and that was before there's a three-pointer. And they got my shirt, my old shirt hanging out over there in the gym, in the, or did have it in the library. They didn't have my name on it. I thought that was bad. <laughs> now, my point simply is this. Finishing strong, finishing strong is impressive. The truth of the matter is, for almost 15 or 20 years, I had a scoring record at, universe, at, at, at Kentucky Christian. I don't know how many points it was, but I averaged about 16.7 a game. And that was before the three-pointer. It was all because my old pappy said, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You finish strong and you'll be a star. The result was I got the prettiest woman in, in, in Carter County. I thought they had money, but I was wrong. <laughs> Nehemiah finished strong. 52 days, less than two months. They restored the walls and, and built the gates, refortified the city of Jerusalem. And that temple, as a result of that, lasted longer than Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. God blessed them. I'm saying to you, I've got to look at this, make sure. I've got two or three minutes here. Many years ago, there were three or four of us got together and spent a lot of time and effort putting together plans for church growth. You could probably Google Paul Benjamin and find out what I'm talking about. Dr. Benjamin taught, I, I feel I've followed him in a church in Illinois and, and he, he taught then at Lincoln Christian College. What we did, we really thought, was the will of God. We taught preachers how to build churches of great numbers. I have friends, when, like Bob Russell and I were, I'm a little older than Bob. He's smarter than me. He went to a church in Louisville under the tutorage of a wonderful preacher there at South Christian Church, South and Christian, or yeah, South Christian Church out in Louisville. About, and they started, had a little church out on the edge of town, that's east part of town, but had about 120 people. Bob Russell implemented what we had put together, and when he retired a few years ago, the membership was over 30,000. We learned how to build great organizations and churches. We learn how to get a great crowd. What we failed to do was to think about the maturity of the people that we converted.
The result has been that we have con large congregations of good people who love God that we haven't fed the Word of God to the extent that they are mature in their faith. Oh, there are a few around who are. I'm promising you until I die, I'm going to do everything I can to feed the flock and help you mature to the place where, come what may, you stand firm in your faith. You finish strong so that God gets the glory. Because he promised, Jesus promised this in the Sermon on the Mount. You do that and God will be glorified. You mature in your faith so that your faith produces action consistent with what you claim you believe. And he will be glorified. Won't it be wonderful to stand in the presence of God as we ultimately will and hear him say as a great coach of the team, well played, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy that I've prepared for you since the foundation of the world. That's why it's called good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that encourages us, that teaches us, that motivates us to live in such a way that Christ can be seen in his bride, the church. Bless this congregation of people. Bless our community, Father. Help us to show them who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming. You're free to go. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.